All right, let's go ahead and uh, <clears throat> pray one more time, and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you yet again, Lord, for your grace to us, your mercy to us, the fact that we can gather in peace um, to hear your word taught, to hear your word preached, to fellowship with one another. Uh, Lord, would you be with us now? Would you, by your Spirit, enlighten our minds and instruct us and help us to see Christ more clearly? Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to grow in you, in your name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and turn uh, in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue walking through these Beatitudes. Uh, today we are on verse 8, coming very closely to the end. At least one person's excited. <laughs> Here we read the following. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As you know, we've been talking about um, kingdom ethics and looking at truly, in, in the light of that, what is the nature or character of those who will one day inhabit Zion, who will one day be in that kingdom for all of eternity. And here we see that the nature that is required is one of being pure, uh, specifically being pure in heart. Um, much like the first beatitude, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it, we know that it wasn't just a material issue of being poor, but more of a spiritual issue of their condition of being poor in, in the very uh, nature of who they are. And so here too, it's not a blessed are those who appear to be pure outwardly, but those who are pure in heart. Uh, those who are pure in their inward being, uh, those, uh, the very core of who they are. And so we see that purity of heart in this case, right? And, and, and what we're told here is that it's absolutely essential in order to see God, in order to dwell with God, uh, in order to enjoy that favorable presence of God. Because in some sense, everybody will see God, right? Everybody will stand before him. Everybody will bow the knee. But this aspect of seeing God in, in light of this verse is truly his favorable presence forever. And so, the way I want to walk through this is the verse actually breaks down pretty, pretty nicely, right? We want to look at what it means to be pure or what it means to be clean. Um, and I want to do this by looking at the Old Covenant and what we see in that covenant, primarily of the ritualistic or ceremonial type activities that were done, and then what was ushered in with the New Covenant in Christ. Next, we'll look at what is meant by the phrase, in heart. And then what I want to do is, because we've looked at those separately, I kind of want to combine them and look at them together. What does it mean to then be pure in heart? Um, we'll look at three aspects of what it is to be pure in heart. And then finally, uh, if time allows, we'll look at the blessing of what it is to see God. Um, so let's go ahead and, and jump in. Uh, looking uh, first, I would say, at what it is to be uh, pure or to be clean. Um, under the Old Covenant, what we see uh, in this regard. You see, it's necessary for us to spend time here, I believe, right? Because we've got to understand what is meant by the word pure. Um, first, purity, right, we have to understand is absolutely essential for communing with God, right? And being part of his covenant community. And this is what we definitely see um, in uh, the Old Testament, but both Old and New, 
There's a need to be pure. There's no change in the sense of the requirement of being pure to commune with God or to be part of his community. And I think that this is what will ultimately help us to understand what we're seeing here. So under the Old Covenant, we primarily see uh, ritualistic um, and ceremonial uh, purification activities taking place um, when somebody was unclean. Um, first, we obviously have all of the offerings, right? All the different sacrifices that had to be made in that time. We had sin, guilt, burnt grain, peace offerings um, that were all required. And then on top of that, think of all the washings, the bathings, the sprinklings uh, that were done in order to be able to serve the Lord, right? To be consecrated to serve the Lord, these things had to be done, not only for the people, but even the utensils that were used in service. Then on top of that, think about the aspects of when uncleanness entered the camp. What had to happen then? Um, one of the examples I want to look at is leprosy. We won't necessarily read the, the verses just because it's, it's quite a bit, but I would say if you're interested in kind of studying this or looking into it further, you're going to find uh, leprosy dealt with in Leviticus 13 through 14. And then, if you're really excited after that, read on into 15 that talks about all other types of uncleanness that have to be dealt with. Uh, but with leprosy... Once somebody was diagnosed or identified as truly having a leprous condition, an infection, uh, they were placed outside the camp. And in that day, to be placed outside the camp, as I'm sure many of us know, it, I mean, you're, you're broken off in a sense from that covenant community. You're on your own. You're not fellowshipping with people. You're cut off from doing the sacrifices and so forth. Um, and then what would happen is that he'd be visited by the priests, the priest would come outside the camp, examine him, and determine whether or not that condition had departed. Once that condition departed, there would be sacrifices that would be offered, uh, and they would be pronounced clean, and then they could come back into the camp. However, these ritualistic and ceremonial cleansings and washings Right, are ultimately done away with in the ushering in of the new covenant. Right? Could you imagine like today, like having to still like do all those offerings and all the ceremonies and all the rituals, right, to be in communion with God? I mean, read through that section of scripture and it's like I mean, pretty much all of Leviticus talks about it. But the external Right back then, it was uh, much of it was a nationalistic perspective. It was a lot of external activity in which you were made clean and, and things of that nature. Um, but God is not concerned with merely the external, but the whole of the person. And as we know, for the for the true person, like true Israel, the true person of God, right? This change has always taken place inwardly first, right? But what you see in under the old covenant with Israel, much of it was external actions that were done. Um, but it was just more progressively revealed throughout Scripture of how this change was taking place. And so let's go ahead and let's turn to Ezekiel 36 as we look at the, 
the new covenant. And we'll look at uh, verse 25 through uh, 26. Would somebody like to read that? Okay. Then will I pour clean water upon you, you shall be clean, you from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also I'll give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I'll take away the stony heart of your body and will give you a heart of flesh. Uh twenty six is good. So in a sense, what we see here, right, is this twofold cleansing. All of the prior washings, right, just uh, were symbolic of be, to be made clean, to be made pure. Uh, but what we see here is a twofold cleansing. We will be cleansed and purified from all of our filthiness. I like the ESV rendering that says from all of our uncleannesses to really show, in a sense, the depth of um, how defiled we truly were or truly are by nature. But then we read this, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. What I think is being conveyed there is these are not to be repeated. We will be sprinkled clean. We will be made clean in Christ. And there's no more of these rituals and ceremonies that are to be repeated. It's one time by the work of Christ. And so from this, we can understand that uh, to be pure ultimately means, right, to be clean, to be free from any defilement, to be uh, free from defect, to be free from blemish, uh, no impurities whatsoever. This is one aspect to be clean. But that's not all it means, right? Because what we also then read is not only will we be cleansed from our filthiness, but from all of your idols, So not only sin and, and filthiness, but idols, right? Now, what is an idol or what is idolatry? Right. Right, and so the way that we see that generally played out in the Old Testament um, is that idols, in that case, were truly things that you actually fashioned and that you offered sacrifices to or that you bowed down and worshipped, right? And we see that while that still obviously takes place around us in the various religions and so forth, as far as physical like idols that would be bowed down to, I agree that in the, in the New Testament, what we see is this idea of idols, kind of the, the definition kind of broadening, if you will, in the sense of being exactly what K-Dub mentioned, this exalting of anything to be higher than God, to worship more than God, to love more than, to love more than we love him. Um, and we see this, right, in some case, like in Philippians 3.19, where it talks about, like, the, their God is their appetite. So they, they love food, they love their appetite more than God. Um, or Colossians 3.15, right, we read there, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And so what I believe is being conveyed in this cleansing from all idols is that there will be given to us or a, a, a growth in undivided devotion to God, to pursuing Him wholeheartedly. Yes. How do you take a 
three five. Yeah. There's a sincerity. There's a genuineness. There's no hypocrisy or like a double-mindedness in our approach to God. Uh, but instead, there's a single-mindedness or a laser-like focus uh, on Him. And we'll get into this a little bit more when we go to combine both this aspect of being pure with then pure in heart. So what is, um, I guess I'll put it over here, what is referenced when he says heart or um, in heart, right? What, how, do, how are we to understand uh, what this is? Obviously, it's not necessarily referring to the like, fleshly organ per se, although there are times where we read in Scripture where it would clearly refer to something like that, right? But in this case, um, how are we to understand it? What is meant by heart? The soul? Yeah, I like that. Inward being. That's what happens to our heart when we're given the new heart, right? Um, we can often refer to the heart as like the seat of the emotions, right? Like uh, emotional activity. Um, we can look at the heart as um, our understanding, our intellect, Right, our mind in some sense. Um, but it's not just the emotions or just the intellect, right? It's not, um, you know, be sound in all this doctrine and have a, an intellectual assent to it, right? Um, That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. There is an aspect in which there's a that's our our spiritual being, our spiritual relationship with God. There's a there's a moral aspect to it. But at the end of the day, like that's what it is, right? The heart is referenced as the very core of our being. Who we are. That's right. Yep. And that's why we're also told in Proverbs 4.23, right? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You want to know what somebody truly believes? Don't listen to what they say, right? Like, look at what they're doing. Because that shows what they truly believe. And so that's ultimately what God wants. That's what's brought to the forefront is the relationship with God. Um, he wants us to obey him from the heart, to love him with the whole heart, right? That's what we see in Deuteronomy 6. If you want to turn over there. Six verses four through six, if somebody would like to read that. Landon, you got that? Yeah. Mm. So what is conveyed there, right, is very much what we said. The core of our being is how we are to worship Him. It's not a superficial 
actions and superficial just reading, superficial church attendance, right? Uh, but he wants the whole of our being, who we are, to worship him. Um, what I thought was interesting, too, is uh, where it says, they shall be on your heart. It's that these words are not just something that we assent to, but it's these words that we live by. They guide our actions so much so that if we read further, it's talking about how you should talk about them and they should be on your doorposts and on the forefront of your eyelids. Like the whole of his word, his law, that should be what's driving us. That should be what's, what's um, our motivation um, to, to how we live. Right? It's not an honoring God with our lips and then our hearts are far from him. Right? It's not saying, oh, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, right? But ultimately doing. It's like that verse in Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my mm. heart, that I might not sin against thee. Right, in the core of who he is, right? Taking that word in, and then that guiding, right? So that we don't sin against him, or hopefully it keeps us from sinning against him. And so it's always been the state of the heart that matters, um, and so by that, we must understand what was being referenced here is the core of our being, the whole or the totality of who we are. Um, I guess I'll do it over here now. So when we look at being pure in heart, as far as the whole phrase goes, how do you guys think it breaks down? Under this, under here, right, we saw that there was uh, uh, filthiness, uh, being removed and idols uh, taken away, right? So when we refer to being pure in heart, uh, what do you think is being conveyed here? What's that? Well, it definitely involves certainly an aspect of that, and that is one of the aspects that we'll get into, truly being made pure in heart. Right? That's the aspect of the filthiness being removed. Holiness. Pursuit of holiness is one of the other aspects that we'll get into. Yeah, ultimately, right, to me, that's the idols being taken away. Right? You have all these things that vie for our attention. All these things that want to divide us and go after all these things. And then, like, you know, God's over here, if you will. And it should be that all these things fade away. And all of our attention and focus goes on, on pursuing uh, God. And in some cases, a lot of that's done by pursuing holiness. Um, and so that's how I think that ultimately it's as if there's a uh, filthiness is over here. And idols, uh, idols being uh, removed over here. These are the two items, I think, that correspond to being pure in heart. Um, we see a removal of the filthiness, the removal of sin, all of those things that defiled us. In a sense, we are made right with God, right? Um, and we'll walk through this aspect of that um, by looking at a couple places in Scripture. But that other aspect is that of, of the removal of the idols, right? We're talking about the characteristics of those who will one day inhabit Zion, so yes, they will absolutely be without any filthiness. They will be clean. They will be pure. But we must understand that pure in heart also refers to that of undivided devotion. 
How are we going to be in Zion worshiping anything else or have a focus anywhere else other than on the King of Heaven? And so what is conveyed in this idea of undivided devotion, you'll see it in different words or different phrases, like a single eye uh, or a singleness of your eye. You'll see it, uh, sincerity of heart. Um, And so there's an allegiance to wholeheartedly following him. So this is, um, you know, removal of sin. Um, In a sense, uh, being made... Uh, right with him. I'm writing crooked is what I'm doing. And then, over here, it would be uh, undivided uh, devotion, um, single-mindedness versus a double-mindedness. And I think that we see this um, beautifully portrayed in Psalm 8611, if you want to turn over there. Psalm 86 and verse 11. We read here, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's as if he is saying my heart is so fickle or so easily set in upon by all the different distractions that can be pursued. Unite my heart to fear your name. Give me a sincerity of heart in following after you. Spurgeon, in regards to this verse, says this, Having taught me one way, give me one heart to walk therein. For too often I feel a heart and a heart. What's he saying? A heart and a heart. That's right. That's right. Two natures contending, two principles struggling for sovereignty. So that's that idea of that our heart would be united to fear his name, that our heart would be united to follow after him. And I think too often, like we're, we are easily set in on. We see career, we see uh, money, we see possessions. We see all these things, right? And it's as if we want to have one foot in the world and then one foot following the Lord versus following the Lord. And all these other, what's that? That's right. And you can't do it. And that's what we'll see here if you want to turn over to Matthew 6, 19 through 24. You cannot pursue separate things. We read here, it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So it's as if you're saying, Oh, I want the treasures of this world. I want to store up treasures here, but I want to follow God. Can you do that? No. You can't, right? That's what he's saying. It's like, that's where your heart will be. Whatever you truly treasure, whatever you truly desire, your heart will be there. 
But he goes on and says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, now that word clear can be referred to in some older translations as single. Um, It could also be sincere. Um, But truly the Greek word would refer to an action of single-mindedness. So if your eye is focused on one thing, single, right? If your eye is focused, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And we know, then this next, right? No one can serve two masters. For you'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So we have this idea that contrary to belief or whatever we conjure up in our mind, that we can somehow be part of this world truly in how we live and in what we pursue, and at the same time pursue God as he calls us to pursue him, we cannot do it. We're told, even by Christ, we cannot do it. No matter how hard we try. And so what, I guess to summarize, this idea of being pure in heart is not only the removal of filthiness, but it's the removal of idols. It's the removal of the things that distract us. And so I want to look now at three aspects of being pure in heart. The first aspect um, is really what we've hit on in the form of filthiness being removed and uh, sin being taken away, truly being made pure before him. And I was trying to do some alliteration, and I was able to do alliteration on the first two. The third one, not so much, but that's okay. Um, Here we have uh, positional purity. What do you guys think I mean by positional purity? What's that? That, Right, kind of where we stand before God. In our position before Him, we are positionally pure in heart because of what Christ has done. And just like when we looked at uh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, that's the foundation it starts on. It's because He obtained a righteousness that we have through faith. He too has obtained a purity that makes us positionally pure in heart with Him. So let's go ahead and look at, and well, actually, before we do that, right, we understand the need for this, right? We all understand that we're sinners. We know what Scripture says, that the heart is above all deceitful and wicked, right? We know that man's heart from, is like, the intent of man's heart from his youth is evil. We know that nobody can bring a clean out of an unclean except one who gives us a new heart, Right? Even Christ himself said, it is out of the heart that evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanderers. That's what comes out of the heart as it stands naturally. And so we must be made pure. Let's go ahead and turn over to uh, Psalm 24. In verse 3, we'll look at a a decent chunk of this, kind of broken up a little bit here. We're going to look at verses 3 
uh, through 4 and then 7 through 10. But this is what we read. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Who is this talking about? The righteous? The righteous? That's it. I mean, yes, the righteous, but ultimately, who is it shown forth in? Christ, right? Um, so we have a positional purity here because of Christ. Um, we know, right, what does Peter tell us? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And so what we must understand is that this refers to Christ and then by default to us. And look at what we see in verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Guys, do we realize that we ascend the hill of the Lord because He ascended? He had the pure heart. He had what was necessary, and He leads the way for us to one day, in that final day, ascend the hill of the Lord. And the gates opened for one. The doors opened for one. Right? Who? The King of glory. And they are now opened for us because of what He has done. That is truly amazing that we get to ascend that hill, not because we were by nature pure, but because we've been made positionally pure by Christ. And we get to ascend. We get to enter in. Let's turn over to Hebrews 10, speaking of entering in. We read here in this passage the following. It says, Therefore, brethren... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now there should be some things that came to mind when we read that because we've heard that kind of language already, right? Think back to what we talked about in regards to the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the priests would uh, go to the people, the people would look to them, and the priests would pronounce them clean. And here, in the New Covenant, all those types and shadows, done away with, gone, wiped out, bound up in Jesus Christ. Gone. He, we look to him as our high priest now. 
He is the one we look to to be made pure. He pronounces us pure on the basis of what he did. And don't we see in this verse, in a sense, shades of Ezekiel 36, 25, right? There we read, um, I will, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. And then here we read, um, where we, are, we have uh, our hearts, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Same, same language from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Never again to be defiled. That if we are truly in Christ, we will never ultimately be defiled again and need to be cleansed again. We've been cleansed in Him. And this is our positional purity in heart. We can enter into the sanctuary that heavenly sanctuary, not necessarily, I mean, we can enter in here, right? But we have access now to that heavenly sanctuary because of Christ, our high priest, Christ, our king of glory. The next aspect was mentioned earlier, and that was of um, practical purity. Which would... Uh, certainly convey, con- convey the idea of pursuing holiness, right? You have the foundation laid by Christ that then leads to a practical purity in heart. Uh, how do we live our life day to day? I know that we've looked at some of this um, really under the righteousness, you know, hunger and thirsting after righteousness, and that means hunger and thirsting after holiness, and all of the, the, the put-offs and put-ons that we considered, right? But even more specifically, here we have in, that comes to mind is the idols being removed. All of these things that vie for our attention, fading to the background. Think of the things, right, what, what Colossians 3.5 said that we looked at, those things that amounted to idolatry, um, but that were to consider our earthly members dead to those things. Alive to God, dead to those things, Right? Each of these beatitudes um, you know, are laid out individually, but they're an organic whole, and so there's going to be that overlap between them, between the hunger and thirsting after righteousness and pursuing righteousness and now practically being pure in heart. We see what is stated positively in Matthew 5.8 here, right, about blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, state of ne- stated negatively in Hebrews uh, twelve fourteen, right? If we flip over real quick, I think we're still in Hebrews ten, but we'll flip over here. <clears throat> twelve fourteen says, "Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification, or and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. No holiness, no seeing the Lord." Now, at the beginning, I said, "Well, everybody's going to see the Lord ultimately, right?" They're going to stand before him. So this seeing the Lord is truly dwelling in his presence for all of eternity with his favorable presence, his enjoying presence for all of eternity. If we are not pursuing holiness, um, we should examine ourselves and see if we are truly in the Lord or not. 
Because as I said, you can't have a foot in the world and then a foot in the kingdom and expect to, to be okay. You need to be fully devoted to the Lord. That is what he has called us to. That's a vivid image. <laughs> you won't be in, right? Like you're going to be caught in between. That's it, you know, in some sense. Like there's no being in it in, in that sense. Did you? Yeah. That's another, you're going to be spit out. The third aspect, and this is where I lost the alliteration, unfortunately, but a corporate purity. The Christian life uh, was not meant to be lived out in isolation, right? Um, Contrary to what many people say in the evangelical churches, uh, it's not your own personal walk. Now, in some sense, like I can't believe for you, right? So it's personal in that sense that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But after that, there's a walking among the body. There's a us gathering together. Even think about it, we don't, even as Emilio said in his sermon last week, right, we don't individually, like, meet the Lord in the air, right? As he said, we are actually gathered together, and then we meet the Lord in the air. So what we see here even is in Hebrews 10.23, actually, just down from where we are, uh, or where we were, if we want to flip back there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you can see what is to take place here. It's not okay, you come to Christ, now like, you know, go do your own thing, live your own life. Uh, but there's a gathering together, there's an assembly, a body of believers in which we stimulate one another, we push one another on towards love and good deeds. We don't neglect meeting together, but instead, the flip side is that it's, like it's implied that, okay, you're going to meet together, but you're not just going to meet together and come and then go your own way, you're actually going to encourage one another. You're going to push each other on. And that aspect should be growing, right? Like we should, it should be as more and more we see the day drawing near. It's not just, okay, I encourage, but like we should be growing in our love to push one another on, to stir one another up. Together as a body, that should be our focus. All of the uh, one another's. Yeah, that aspect of with them, right? Mm. And so I guess to summarize, right, we've covered quite a bit, but just to summarize these three points, 
To be pure in heart is to have our heart truly made pure by the work of Christ. So there's a positional purity in him by which we are able to ascend the hill of the Lord. And therefore, by necessity, this leads to a practical purity, a living out of seeking to be pure in heart in this life, in which the idols or those things that vie for our attention fade away to the background. The more that we're in his word, the more that we're stirring one another up, right? And they fade away as Christ shines brighter and brighter. And finally, uh, this is not done alone, right? But we pursue this purity of heart together. Uh, practicing the one-anothers or the one-to-ones, as even was mentioned, right? We have a personal responsibility one-to-one to each other uh, to, push, uh, to push each other along. All right, and now the, the well, the blessing. Um, I'll just put it in through here. So the blessing of seeing God. We read in Psalm 73, 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that's true, right? I mean, look at the blessing that is associated with this beatitude. We will see God. Now, people often want to know what it means to see God. Um, does that mean we're going to see the Father? Uh, will there be some type of distinguishable manifestation of the Trinity in heaven? You know, what will that mean to see God? And there are a lot of varying opinions on this. Um, and I don't believe that there's, you know, this is a particular area where we can be like dogmatic on a, on a particular stance. Um, because it's just not clear what that ultimately means. But what we do see in 1 John 3, 2, just for some uh, verses, 1 John 3, 2, and then 1 Corinthians First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve. First John three two, we read, beloved. Now that now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we read, For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. And so what we do know at a minimum, right, is we will see Christ. That we know. And I believe the language that is ultimately conveyed in seeing God, it shouldn't necessarily draw our focus to what does it, like, does that mean we see the Father or is there a manifestation that's there, right, that we see but it's this idea of dwelling with God. We will see Him. We will dwell with Him. Be with Him for all of eternity in His favorable uh, presence. Communing with Him. He will be the light. right? His glory will be the light. There's no need for sun. And therefore, I think we have to be careful not to peer too deeply into what it necessarily means to see God. Um, but instead to marvel at the wonder of what has been done for us. To think about the fact that we go from, in a sense, being pure evil, right, to being pure in heart. 
um, and therefore able to see God, able to dwell with God. And it's through nothing that we have done. Think about that. We're no different than anybody outside these walls. But the Father elected us. The Son gave his life and died for us. He lived perfectly and gave himself for us. And then the Spirit regenerated us and gave us that new heart and is sanctifying us more and more to the image of his Son. And so we see that this is a completely Trinitarian work, nothing of ourselves. And think about that. We do not go off when we die if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal punishment. But we go off to eternal enjoyment of God, seeing God, dwelling with Him. Any communion that we have with Him now only gets better in the, in the new heavens and new earth to come. Any questions or comments? That's all I have, so you got nothing? All right, let's go worship.